it's a revolution for all of us. It's a revolution of thought. You know, it's not necessarily like, oh, we're out on the streets protesting, but it's a revolution of our minds. Attitudes are beginning to change. A stigma surrounding dyslexia. Muddled messages were received the by the brain. Dyslexia it will not hold you back. Dyslexic, it's kind of your suit. Anything is dyslexia. Dyslexia. Hello, we are Move Beyond Words and welcome back to another episode of our podcast sponsored by Arts Council England. I'm Elizabeth Riffian. And I'm Charlotte Edmonds. Today is part two of our episode with Balane Tajdeen, curator, educator and founder of Black Blossom School of Arts and Culture. We discuss her experience as a young black artist in London, how she is decolonizing education in the art space and why she believes art can be the ultimate tool for change. Welcome, Belanle Tajuddin, to the Move Beyond Words podcast. One thing that we've been trying to do and we've been talking about a lot is like, how do we make it easier for ourselves? Because we deal with that same anxiety of having to send emails. And recently we we did a proposal for something which was like an eight-page document. Yeah. And we get to the end of it and we're absolutely exhausted. And, you know, something that with Move Beyond Words, we're really aiming to flip the script on how we go about doing those proposals, how we go about having castings and how we work with dancers with dyslexia. And we did a big research in 2019, 2020 about how can we work with people in different ways that create such beautiful work at the end of it that has the same accreditation and like to fit within what's already been existing and Mm. um we were saying the other day if we actually were to revisit that pitch how would we approach it so it's more accessible and dyslexia friendly for us for us (laughs) and it would be can we go in and have an hour and a half or however long you know you have and can we get a whiteboard up, some post-it notes and have a conversation with you on what your program or curation wants to look like, what um, our ideas are and let's kind of make it more physical, make it more interactive and then essentially I suppose both parties benefit because you have an equal understanding of the expectation and you're able to articulate it in just as we are now, like a conversation whereas if there is that anxiety about trying to look at the language around what you're presenting on paper, you can really over um, analyze it and, and it doesn't feel as authentic as it can be. So it'd be amazing to encourage commissioners and, and curators. And if you want to start these artistic conversations to kind of reapproach that way in which you, mm. you apply or pitch. Mm, um, definitely. But in terms of um, writing emails, yeah, Darcy Bustle on one of our episodes, she said that she puts on like relaxing music in the background and nothing that's too distracting. So maybe nothing with lyrics. And that just helps her anxiety. Yeah. Um, and I find that does really help. Yeah, I listen to a podcast called The Read. And for some reason, I don't know if this and it's only that podcast. <laughs> Is it their voice? Yeah, I think it's their voice. They're American. <laughs> That's so cool. And I can have it just like very quietly on in the background and it it does help. Um, and they're funny as well. And they're usually talking about social justice and like, yeah. They, and they talk about popular culture. I'm saying social justice, let me not lie, they're trash as hell. <laughs> but, I love, but it's just very calming and like, 
Yeah, it's like I have to create a whole environment. And right now I don't have a, um, a studio. So even that, like, I find... Um, changing work environments like you know how we all say we're adaptable in like cvs i'm adaptable right Mm -hmm. but i really don't like working on a different desk that i'm used to (laughs) yes you know i sold my with my stuff in the right places like when i had an art studio before i even started working i'd clean up the night before but then i'd come in and then i would rearrange things like things have to be arranged in a certain way this is very sounding like I've got other things apart from dyslexia when I'm oh, actually oh, making sound. And you're dyslexic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm so convinced. Yeah. But yeah, things have to be in a certain way. Like, colour. Like, yeah, it's just, there's, it's a whole process. Yeah. Yes. I can hear you because it, otherwise it disrupts your thought process. It can really um, impact your day ahead. And if there are certain um, anxieties around writing emails anyway, then then that just alleviates that. It's like one less thing. Mm, to think <laughs> it's about. really bizarre saying that out loud, but it really does make a difference. Definitely. There's all these things that we want to make a difference for ourselves and for those Gen Zs. Um, <laughs> You know, why Why is that? Why? What difference is it going to make if these, I'm going to say, underrepresented voices have a platform? What, what are we going to see? I think um, given underrepresented voices a platform is crucial to knowledge production. Um, I think what we don't have, or when you go to like a lot of learning establishments, you have white lecturers, um, male, sometimes women, very much cis, given their ideas. Like sometimes, you know, you'll have a rural perspective if they didn't grow up in London. You'll have you'll have intersections of different perspectives coming through from these groups, but you don't have a full breadth of ideas from a variety and diverse group of people adding to the production of knowledge. So therefore, when we say that education is male, pale and stale, is because there's only been one voice for a very long time in academia. You know, it hasn't been a variety. You know, women were only given certain... Um, I, I think women were only allowed to teach like 100 years ago, if that. Do you know what I mean? Like, women weren't even allowed to teach in Britain. So you have a law, you have the law, the actual law, which is based on men and their needs. And that's why you have issues like rape, being swept under the carpet in court and not necessarily having like... I remember when I did work in the law library, because I don't know why this came up in my mind the other day, but I remember there was this book called um, Feminism and Law. Um, For some reason, I just... I I used to flick through it and I just remember like reading it and just thinking, right, like all the laws in society are very like male dominated and like they they are made for men to like evade the law like the the law is like the biggest yeah law is the biggest detailed thing that we have and they always say the devil's in the detail and the fact that we haven't had voices of women black people poc people disabled people um non-binary people transgender people add to legal knowledge and i'm 
I know I'm, I do art, but <laughs> we can always, we can, I think it works for both. Um, the fact that you only have like one voice in these, um, in these disciplines makes it very difficult for all of us from like, from men to women to people, people of colour. It makes it harder for all of us to understand like the world that we're living in because we, we've only got one worldview majority of the time. Um, and for me, just having a diverse group of people add to knowledge um, and it be valued by um, people, the, the students, the participants, and for them to then use that, what they've learned, and then instill that in their own sort of practices um, just means that we're changing what we think we know what is true because there's many truths you know we can all look at the same thing and come up with a different truth um and I think that's why the school exists is because especially within the arts um creative arts fine arts visual arts there is like a real lack of POC voices you know um and people of colour contribute so much to creative industries. Like, it is... you. We know we contribute so much to creative industries that is usually stolen, not credited back to the originators of that creativity. And my hope is for the school is to start to credit and reference where a lot of our creative and cultural references come from and for people to start to, like, see the pattern and the to have this kind of expansive sort of revolution. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> That's perfect. That's <laughs> Sorry, I've thrown in a revolution there, but, you know, just... But it just... Is, it's a revolution for all of us. It's a revolution of thought, mm. you know. It's not necessarily like, oh, we're out on the streets protesting, but it's a revolution of our minds, Um I've had many of the participants and students come back to me and say, oh my gosh, like it's really altered my thinking yeah. in this kind of subject. And like, you know, it can really, it creates a shift within you um, coming to some of the courses. Um, and that's what I want. I just want to create little shifts, big ripples, little ones, because it just has an overall effect on what they go out and produce and how how people go out and interact and just being like, actually, there is a different reference point for that than maybe using the same male pearl reference point. I mean, how do we follow on from that? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, that was, um, yeah, so inspiring. Can you sign me up to the next course? Definitely. <laughs> so the school's changing a lot, actually. So we're going to go onto a subscription-based model. So right now people pay per a course. Um, they're really um, affordable. They're £50 um, per a course, and it's going to become even more affordable. Um, but our goal is to get a thousand students. So it can only work if we get a thousand students because um, we're working on numbers and lowering the courses and then people having like a, access to the package for the whole year so we can start to build a library and pay um, staff royalties, um, tutors royalties. Yeah, and yeah, like I said, like the business part of um, the work 
is very different to like planning the lessons and curating lessons and finding what courses will be on like the business part is me having on spreadsheets mm-hmm. hey. <laughs> sorry it's me having like spreadsheets um which yeah it's a totally different I kind of enjoy it though it's like okay I need to put everything on a spreadsheet and how do you deal with the pressures of advocacy like right now listening to you speak you have this incredible skill to uh make well I, we're so excited we're just like nodding so much <laughs> which you can't see but is is there a pressure around that yeah I was talking to my friend Cressy hey Cressy if you're listening um I was talking to my friend and he was just like fam you've got the whole world on your shoulders it's not that deep <laughs> so, I think it's literally just having friends that to tell you to just like chill out yeah, I hate that though because <laughs> I'm like, but it is. I can feel it, and it's really hard. And yeah. you know, that's that's uh, yeah, great that you can do that. Yeah, and I need a Questy in my life. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it can, sometimes it can feel um, a bit like oh, or I need Questy in my not- yeah, life, yeah. not a Questy, yeah, like as if it's like Cressy. a uh, need, everyone yeah. needs Questy. But sometimes it can feel like oh, uh, sometimes it can feel that some of my friends are being really dismissive mm. but they're just like sometimes they're just like can you chill the fuck out like it's not that deep especially at a moment when we're all trying to get drunk do you know what I mean <laughs> oh, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know the drunk politician comes out but drunk politician <laughs> what is the drunk politician the drunk politician is putting the words to rights whilst you're drunk oh, oh, can we yeah. go have a drink together <laughs> so it's um yeah dealing with the pressures of advocacy i'm not a perfect person i accept my own flaws first and foremost like i'm very self-critical and reflective so you know you become easier on the world when you become easier on yourself like, you know, like the work that we're doing is more of internal work. It's it's more for us to do the work internally, you know. So therapy, meditating, trying to sleep for eight hours a day. Those are the works that help you deal with advocacy. It's the things that you're doing for yourself. The more self-care and kind of love and um, empathy you give yourself, it hopefully like comes out in your practice. Um but we're all we all fall short from the glory of this sort of perfect person that I think I think it's really interesting actually. This is the first time I'm gonna say it. it I I'm an observer. I see myself as like a very good observer. I love like watching people debate things online. I very rarely comment on like things. I might put a joke up in my story about a news article, but I very I've I I have to reserve my energy. Like, I can't get so... Every time the government does something, I can't respond to it. Mm. So, But I enjoy looking at other people respond to it. Um, and I also enjoy looking at people respond to popular culture. So popular culture is, like, one of my favourite... One of the favourite parts of my practices. I think when we look at popular culture, we see it's just... Um, a magnified version of things that are happening usually in our own personal lives. Um, And I I look at the way a lot of us respond to, like, popular culture 
and celebrities and influencers and politicians. And I'm just like, oh, that's interesting that we we're responding like this as a society. Um, and I don't I don't necessarily I believe that creating society within society. And I just think that that's that's what we can do. Mm-hmm. You know, we're social entrepreneurs. We want to see change. And you can only deal with what you can deal with. And we have to take a minute to accept that, okay, I am doing my bit. And that's where my boundary is. Because if I don't have a boundary, I'm going to feel small because the system is so big. But I can do my bit. And I, I have to be okay with that. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I won't do anything because I'll be stifled by how big how big it is to make social change yeah I really agree with that and like I know what poverty is and I have like an intimate experience with it and that drives me to see value in the work that I create because it's like actually I don't I can't create the I can't create my best work with no money One of the core philosophies of Black Blossoms is to decolonize, deconstruct, and democratize. Could you unpack that for us? I don't know if I've met all of those aims, actually. I definitely think the school um, decolonizes. So, decolonizing is just like, for me, I look at decolonizing as not looking from like the white historical perspective that we've been, like, that isn't the reference point, that isn't the starting point. So the school definitely democratizes. Mm-hmm. Um, it deconstructs, whether or not it deconstructs, I think that's for each learner to to say whether or not the courses have deconstructed things for them, which I guess with the reading materials provided, the learning materials provided, the lectures, that is the deconstruction of mm-hmm. said topic. So yeah, we do. And then the democratising is that all people from all different levels in the art world, all different um, all different um, stages of the learning can come to the lectures. And that's where you create a, dem- a democratic environment because it's not just the lecturer talking to the students. Like, I really like to... Um, encourage conversations between lecturer and participant Um, and then the breakout rooms you know the breakout rooms you can have a student in there to a head of a collection in there and that creates that democracy and it also gives like cultural currency to students and young people and creatives who don't necessarily have access to um to to curators, writers, and things like that. But it also creates cultural currencies for curators and writers who don't necessarily have access to emerging talents because, you know, we get into a bubble of our own groups. So I think that's where the democracies come in and it's just really trying to create this fluid place where everyone has a voice on the topic and there is no right and wrong. And it's not a case of, this is the right answer. There is no right answer in the creative industries. Like, everything is a process of, like discovering, learning and redoing. So that's where the democracy comes in for me. It's like, we're all, I I don't want to be like, we're all equal in this space, but in the space that everyone's voice is valued. 
And I think like as two people with dyslexia, we've obviously come up against our own challenges and we're trying to find spaces that we can kind of work within and and have our voice be valued. And it's it's a it's a scary place to like put your voice forward and and kind of yeah, just to be judged in that space or, 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 you know, but I think you're doing it in such a beautiful way that it is inclusive and um, there is no hierarchy and that is just so important and, and so necessary in a world where everyone has an opinion online, but it kind of goes out into a void and you don't know how people really think about you or, but to have that feedback as well. Um, in that space, I think is is really yeah. important. You know, the space is intentional. I well, I really like the spaces to be intentional. Um, I want people to use the school and come to courses and really meet people outside of their own networks. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, we were talking about conventional methods school and that's something that you were just speaking about about creating like a new environment and we find that we're losing so many talented people who are dyslexic not getting the right support in school mm-hmm. and and there's just like a lack of attendance there there's that is one of our goals my niece actually she's extremely dyslexic um she finds it really hard to read and write and she's always in trouble in class and I've come to the conclusion the reason why she's always in trouble is because she doesn't understand the work she doesn't probably want her peers to know so she's acting up in class because it's a way for her to get away with not doing the work but without drawing suspicion to the fact that she's finding it extremely difficult the way the school has responded to this is by like putting her in like special classes but We've asked them to do do a dyslexia test and they haven't. And the reason why is because they want to, I want to say criminalise, but I think there's a word, there's a softer word before you criminalise a young person. But you want to... Stigmatise? Stigmatise. They want to stigmatise her. So it's like, oh, you're just naughty. You're just naughty. But actually, she's not naughty. She's very much struggling. Fight for her. Yeah, she's I do. For her. Yeah. She's very much struggling with the load. Like, she's she doesn't understand. And, you know, instead of these schools to... I don't know if the pupil premium's higher for naughty students than it is for students with dyslexia because it's also a business isn't it if the school wants to make more money from that child they're going to be like okay this child has a behavioral problem and not a learning um disability because dyslexia is a learning disability right yeah so yeah. yeah so and that comes with a whole different set of interventions Mm -hmm. um compared to dealing with children who are just naughty. And then when you look at the statistics that, yeah, 56% of prisoners have dyslexia and then majority, I want to say majority, but there's a higher percentage of prisoners who are black. The educational system isn't built for black work, black people. It's not built for working class people. The whole system is Victorian and outdated. So it's not taken into account the, the new ways of learning and engaging and even just the fact that my daughter came home, I think it was last year. I don't know if it was during the pandemic when we were all at home, but she came home and she was like, yeah, we're learning about Charles Dickens or something. And I was actually like, what? I was so shocked that they were doing, I think they were reading The Grinch or 
And I was really shocked because I just felt like, oh, I was doing the exact same thing in school 20 years ago. The system hasn't evolved. Um, it's boring. <laughs> so you're you're bound to have kids sitting in class like, what is this? Because social media is teaching our kids so much more that the schools are just they're just because they're like babysitting environments because the kids are not engaging with a lot of the learning that's happening. The kids are only engaging because their parents are like, I'm going to kill you if you don't pass. Do you know what I'm saying? But really and truly, a lot of the kids are bored, you know, and the children that were given this academic excellence to you, I kind of feel kind of sorry for them because they're going to go through this sort of, oh, education's really, really important and come out the other side and realise that the world the school has prepared them for doesn't exist. Mm, yeah. Because it's not going to, the, the, you know, kids are not even, unless you're going to a private school, most of these kids ain't even learning simple coding. Like, how can schools not be teaching the next generation how to code when everything that we do, like, the kids still have to handwrite reports? Does That doesn't make sense. When was the last time you handwritten, you handwritten something and gave it to someone? You don't do that. That's not how the world works anymore. So it doesn't make sense for the schools to keep on operating for a world that doesn't exist. It, it's bizarre. It really is. Yeah, and don't keep cutting the funding for the arts within schools. Right. Again, my daughter came home and she was asked to do something about Monet and I was just like, this is really boring. Um, I spoke to our art teacher. Art teacher was like, look, <laughs> I'm, we don't really have supplies. And my daughter goes to a really good school. Like, it's actually outstanding. But yeah, even within the outstanding school, the art department is suffering. Funnily enough, the drama department has quite a bit of money, which I found quite interesting. But the art department doesn't. And I found that really interesting. I wanted to inquire more, but then I was just like, I've got out of our things to see. <laughs> I'm changing the world over here. Yeah. Like, can you just sort your shit but out? Like, yeah, there is, again, yeah, there's no arts, there's no creativity in schools. There wasn't much for me in, like, when I think back to, like, secondary school, drama, yeah, again, was quite fun. Um, we had textiles and we had art. Um, our school at the time, I went to a Catholic girls' school, and at the time, our school, this day, I don't think they really do it anymore, but it was a specialist school for art. But even as a specialist school, it didn't capture me. <laughs> like, I wasn't, I, wasn't, I didn't feel really involved in the arts as like that. So, yeah, I just, I think the schools that I look at that are really fun, um, I guess the Forest School, which is for young oh, children. Yeah. And I yeah. do wonder what that would be like mm. going into secondary school and what that kind of free kind of learning would be like. I think they'd be teaching the teachers at that point. Yeah. Or yeah. some of them are. Yeah, because, yeah, it's such an interesting an interesting concept that I, I wish I'd had it, been exposed to because school wasn't that fun. But yeah, forest school is is so interactive and actually, you know, you've, you're using all your senses all the time. And yeah, 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 I wish I could go back. Yeah, I definitely think that kind of, and I think again though, it's like, unfortunately, the forest school and these alternative schools 
are genuinely for middle class parents who are trying to disengage with the current sort of models that we have. But it's, you know, working class parents don't have access to it and they kind of need it the most. POC parents don't have access to it. Again, like, like their children need it the most. And it's like, how do we... This, yeah, just the, the um, primary and secondary school system, mainstream school system is a mess mm-hmm. in this country. And that's just from a parent perspective. I've never... Well, I would never work in a school anyway. I'd really try not to work with young people in my practice. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but, like, when I mean young people, like, under 18s, like, yeah. <laughs> I really try to stay away. But, um, yeah, just from a parent perspective, when I look at the school system and when I even look at the language of the how they're giving my daughter homework, I'm just like, you know, it's a bit weird. And speaking about those difficulties through education um what was your advice be to young creatives who like you said the art department didn't serve you whilst you were at school what would your advice be sign up to the black blossom school of art and culture come and learn with us (laughs) and then I think one of the things that I really I feel like I missed out was I didn't realise that a lot of creative institutions, so like Tate, the Science Museum, the National History Museum, they have young people's collectives. Mm. Oh, yes. Yeah, and that I didn't know. I've only just found that out recently. Yeah, Yeah. a lot of them are kind of newly established and a lot of them are expensive. So I think before it would be like 18 to 24 or 16 to like 21, Um, but they are expanding the ages. So I think a lot of them are going to 30 now. But joining a youth collective of a creative institution is like up there. I think it's Every single creative, even if they have a stint, a three-month stint, it's just really good because it gives you an opportunity to see how creative institutions are run from the inside. And then usually you get to create something as well within that institution. It opens up your networks. You get to meet new people. You get to meet people within your creative, you're within your um, youth collective that will go off and do everything in the creative industries. And it's a, re- I think creative um, youth Youth groups for creative institutions are like one of the biggest ways to expand your networks as a young person and also make a name for yourself. So true. That's how I found out about, you know, dance schools and through a youth dance company. And like you said, you can see the way in which a company would run, being a part of a team, seeing how a composer would work, Mm -hmm. being directed and responding. It's like so eye-opening. I just yeah. had to jump on that because yeah. you brought it back really a memory is. there. Yeah, it's really like, I think it's, it's yeah, it's 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 kind of like work experience, isn't it, for the yeah. creative industries. But it's also quite fun, Yeah, I think. It's not an intern because usually you get to create something really creative at the end. You get to make decisions. Um, and you, yeah, like you start to understand there's curators, there's producers, there's... Um, Invigilators, there's, I'm going to say people who hang up works, but they're called technicians, art technicians. (laughs) (laughs) But there's, you know, you get to start to see how communications between all of these different departments operate in these youth collectives. If you, especially if you're really in our, like, it's a really good way for you to just like get to know and understand. So I think that's one of the advice that I would give to young people um, wanting to access the creative industries 
And then the third advice, because I've given two, mm-hmm. <laughs> my third one would be is to have fun. Like, as most of us, most of us work in the creative industries as freelancers. So that Christmas party that you would have in your normal nine to five workplace. It doesn't happen. It doesn't actually happen. Yeah. But there, what does happen is private views, open days, open evenings. There's different ways for us to, and it does always feel like you're working and you're on because you are actually working. But, these are also spaces for you to have fun and relax with people in your industry. It's a different tone to something that's a bit more formal. Um, and I found like most, I've made so many good friends from just like going to private views and nights out with them and having dinners. And um, you really, you know, don't do anything that you're not having fun with. Um the the joy from those moments will keep you going when things in like, the actual work is difficult, you know. Just something that you said earlier, your second point, um, as someone who grew up in a rural area from an, in, in a working class family, um, for anyone listening, there are scholarships as well. So, um, you know, going and doing a course in London or in Manchester, you know, never be afraid to ask if they have funding and, and scholarships available because often they do. And and also, like, there's so much beauty in rural areas that I think when you live there, you don't appreciate. And mm-hmm. so if you can find ways to be creative with the environment that you're already in, you know, find it and seek it because that's of such value when you do get to the city. I just wanted to self organize as well. Mm-hmm. If you live in like a rural area, you might think you're the only creative person and you might be. You mm-hmm. you could be the only creative person in your village. But the chances are there might be two or three other people and that's your little network. Yeah. And that's rich. You know, and that's rich enough. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of stories about people coming together from a young age to create something that was a bit that wasn't mainstream that people thought they were quirky and weird celebrate it celebrate yeah. it be quirky be weird stand out from the crowd mm. yeah i used to be like i'm i'm starting to get back into like being really loud with my fashion and my hair and my nails and all of that when i'm ready but younger I really like, I didn't care. Like I was really like, yeah, I'm going to wear this and wear that. And like, I'm going to put on a big tutu and put on like, you know, I'm going to stand out. And then like something happened along the way where I was just like, oh, I'm going to shrink myself a bit. But like, don't be afraid to like fully put yourself out there and be yourself and stand out and just be the moment, like be the main character. Pro tag. Love that. <laughs> Pro tagonist. Love that. Yeah. Oh, I've loved this conversation like so, 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 so much. So thank you so much for joining us I love talking to both of you as well. Thank you so much for asking me to come on Dyslexia Rules. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Thank you for your time. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Move Beyond Words podcast. For more information about this episode, please check out the links in the show notes or visit our website at movebeyondwords.co.uk. 
If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. From as little as a pound, the price of seven bananas from Tesco's, you can join our network on Instagram, enjoy access to behind-the-scenes content, and receive a Move Beyond Words welcome pack. To become a patron, please head over to patreon.com slash movebeyondwords or follow the link in the show notes. This podcast was produced by the Move Beyond Words team, Elizabeth Arifium, myself, Charlotte Edmonds, and Chris Bristow. It was recorded in Serendipity Studios, London, with graphic design by Alex Colhan and sound design and music by Chris Bristow and Tom Parker.